Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, April 21st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. An acquisition in biotech, finally. Just what biotech investors have been waiting for, right? We'll take a look at Regeneron's purchase of Checkmate Pharmaceuticals and why it may not be the good news investors hoped. Then, the FDA has a program to speed up the approval of so-called breakthrough medical devices, but it appears to be benefiting companies rather than patients. Stats Mario Aguilar joins us to explain. We'll start with a look at some other news from the week of Biopharma. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Gregory Rippon, Vice President and Chief Medical Partner at Genentech. Greg, how important is the role of early detection and treatment in neurological conditions? Thanks, Angus. Across neurodegenerative disorders, the earlier patients and providers are able to intervene in the disease process, the more we can potentially do to slow progression and prevent further neuronal damage. At Genentech, we are studying medicines in the earliest stages of diseases, like Alzheimer and Huntington disease and MS. Lessons learned from studying one disorder can be applied to others. For example, as we have come to better understand the progressive neurodegenerative process in MS, we are able to leverage what we have learned in our work on Alzheimer, Parkinson, and other neurodegenerative diseases in our MS research. We are also exploring innovative solutions, like blood-based biomarkers and digital technologies, so we can recognize diseases earlier, monitor them more closely, and develop medicines to treat patients more effectively. Visit gene.com forward slash neuroscience to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash neuroscience. This week's Chatty Cathy will stick mostly to COVID. Uh, Meg, there was an ACIP meeting this week. You watched, listened to this meeting. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So ostensibly, this meeting was to talk about booster recommendations for the folks who just got authorized for their second booster. So people over the age of 50 and those who are immunocompromised over the age of 12 for an additional booster. Um, But there ended up being a really interesting portion that sort of answered two big questions that people following the vaccine space have had recently. One is, what's going on with the vaccine for kids under five? And what's going on with the Novavax application? And basically, during the public comment period, it was dominated by parents of kids under five making these really impassioned pleas for health authorities to find some way to expedite the review. Um, And then after the public comment period, the FDA's presenter had just a scheduled presentation to really sort of recap how they're thinking about boosters for the rest of the year. But instead, he started by saying he'd been asked to address the kids vaccine under five question. um, And he basically said they're still waiting for the applications from Moderna and Pfizer. And when they get them, they'll review them quickly. Um, And then he also said he wanted to address questions about the Novavax vaccine application, uh, essentially saying, you know, people are asking about an alternative technology to mRNA and viral vector vaccines. Novavax is a more traditional protein with an adjuvant uh, vaccine. And he said, essentially, this is a complex review of not just clinical data, but manufacturing data. And when they have all the data they need, they'll review it quickly. So, of course, this led to all sorts of questions for both of those things. And let's start with Novavax, which was 
do they have they not submitted all the data they're supposed to submit? Like what is happening with this? So I checked in with Novavax and they said they're, you know, in conversation with the FDA, providing them the information they need. And they expect to see an advisory committee meeting, you know, scheduled sometime in the near future. Um, but then the questions are just sort of like what's going on with this vaccine, which I think has been a question for, you know, several months to a year now. Yeah, the Novavax saga has been, I mean, thankfully, the the vaccines that are available are so effective that it's a little bit more of a subplot to the COVID pandemic than than uh, a big story. But this is a company that successfully developed what, from what we can tell from the data, is a very effective vaccine that we shouldn't do cross-trial comparisons, blah, 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 but appears to be or appears to have fewer safety issues or fewer side effects than the vaccines that are available, which is the kind of thing that would be wonderful to add to the armamentarium against this virus. However, it has now been almost 12 months since we found out that the vaccine works really well, and Novavax, the corporate entity, has consistently missed its own self-imposed deadlines for manufacturing things, regulatory things, such that you know, even now with this update from the FDA, Novavax filed for an emergency use authorization in January. And I think we all kind of assumed that it would happen sometime this quarter by virtue of how that process tends to work. And now yet again, that deadline has been kind of thrown asunder because if they if the FDA doesn't have the data that it needs, then we really have no idea when this thing might actually be available in the United States. Yeah, it's really remarkable how long we have been waiting for the Novavax vaccine to be filed and then be reviewed and, and I guess, ultimately approved. Uh, you know, David, you mentioned that, you know, it's been kind of a year. You know, a year ago, and you know, maybe we shouldn't think of stock prices as, as proxies here in COVID, but uh, I like to look at stock prices. And, and uh, Novavax was a $250 stock a year ago. Uh, I had not looked at the stock price for a really long time. Uh, it's like 50 bucks now. Uh, it's just a remarkable decline. You know, there used to be this cult, this is the Novavax cult of, uh, of stock lovers on, uh, especially on Twitter. I don't know if they're still around, but they've got to be hurting. Well, they're definitely still around, at least some of them who feel very passionately about this. You hear from them, Meg? <laughs> I hear from them frequently, questioning why I'm not doing more digging on why Novavax has not been authorized. Um, there, there's a group of them that believes in a conspiracy that you know the FDA is in cahoots with Pfizer and Moderna and it get they get, you know, special treatment. Uh, then there's also a group who believes in the Novavax technology and platform and but is really frustrated with management. But that seems to be a much smaller group, uh, at least of the people on Twitter who I hear from. Um, but I mean, it, it was really interesting to hear the FDA volunteer the information about this application. That really shows because I didn't hear any Novavax fans, you know, testifying in the public comment period uh, at the CDC meeting. Maybe I missed one. But, um, you know, they addressed the, the kids vaccine after there were so many, you know, sort of public comments about it. But they've also brought up Novavax, which shows they are hearing from people wondering about where this vaccine is. I may mentioning the the kids vaccine. It seems like the FDA is under some sort of there's a conundrum at the FDA about how and when to approve these kids vaccines. Yeah. So Politico had a really interesting story that I think upset a lot of people waiting for vaccines for their kids, um, which came out Thursday morning, uh, which essentially cited sources within you know the Biden administration saying 
there's disagreement over whether they should wait on the Moderna application, which we learned, you know, from asking Moderna after hearing all this at the FDA meeting or the CDC meeting, we asked Moderna when they're going to file because they had the data about a month ago and they said they were going to file within the coming weeks. And they told us they'll file by the end of the month, which is essentially, you know, by the end of next week. So that made a lot of parents really excited and happy. But then this Politico article comes out saying, the Pfizer data are expected, you know, within a few weeks at some point, the third dose data. And the question is, does the FDA review those simultaneously so that you essentially have a situation where two vaccines become available at the same time and there can be messaging around both of them rather than one vaccine becoming available and then a few weeks later, another one potentially becoming available? And they have really different profiles. You know, the Moderna one is two doses of a much higher dose. Pfizer is three shots of a much lower dose. We don't yet know what those data look like. We've seen Moderna's. So then the question is, you know, should parents be given the option of getting the first one available? And how would they feel then if another one that perhaps might look better becomes available a few weeks later? Can that be messaged, you know, adequately by the administration um, so that parents can make informed decisions? I think that's a huge question right now, but I'm hearing from a lot of parents who just want any option. They don't care which one it is. They want anything to get through. Earlier this week, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, one of biotech's largest and most successful drug makers, announced its intention to purchase Checkmate Pharmaceuticals. Acquisitions are almost always a celebratory event and are particularly welcome these days in biotech, which is suffering from an extended bear market. But taking a deeper look at this Regeneron Checkmate deal also reveals some complicated implications for a growing number of biotechs that are struggling to survive on their own. Damien, let's break down the deal, starting with some of the basic numbers and the reasons for optimism. Right. So Regeneron is paying $250 million, which is a premium to Checkmate's previous closing price of four times. That's a bizarre way of phrasing that. What I'm saying is they're paying four times as much for Checkmate than a share of the company would have gone for prior to that. And so, you know, choosing to perceive the glass as half full, that's massively encouraging for the many, many companies that like Checkmate have seen their stock prices fall to levels where basically they're worth less than the cash that they have in the bank. This suggests that companies like Regeneron are perceiving this sort of discontinuity in valuations and are and are seeing bargains out there and thus, you know, your favorite tiny beleaguered biotech company might become the next Checkmate Pharmaceuticals. But Adam, I turn to you as always for um, why the glass is half empty. Uh, and you wrote a story this week about some of the maybe more ominous implications of this deal. Oh, Damien, thanks. You're going to give me the let me be the bad guy here. <laughs> um, yeah, like you know, like you said, I think that a deal like this, there's reasons to be optimistic. But I think you also have to sort of step back and think or think about what Checkmate, where Checkmate was going into this deal. This was a company that had a market value, you know, just on the day prior to this deal being announced, of only fifty-two million dollars. Uh, it's a, it was really a tiny, tiny company. Um, and they actually had about $70 million in cash on their books. So basically what you're saying, what they were saying or what the market was saying was that the company's cash, $71 million, was worth more than all of Checkmate's assets, $52 million. And that included the cancer drug that it was de- developing that now uh, Regeneron will own. Um, once this deal closes. And you know, and the other thing I would point out is Checkmate went public in 2020 at 
$8 a share. So kind of in reality, this is like a take-under deal, um, particularly for the investors who bought the stock at the IPO price of just over $10. And you've actually taken a look, and there's some data suggesting a lot of companies might be in a similar position, right, Adam? Yeah. So um, there's a biotech analyst by the name of Ken Storch. He works at BTIG, and he's been keeping track of the number of biotech companies that trade at a... uh, basically what is called a, a negative enterprise value. And that's what I discussed earlier, where you know basically the company has more cash in, on its books than the market value. And what was really interesting about this is, and it's a, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a negative and, and sort of a warning sign for the sector is that as of the early this week, there were 147 biotech and drug companies with a negative enterprise value. Um, that's up uh, considerably. Like in January, that number was 117. So as you're seeing, as the market deteriorates, as biotech stocks fall, and we have seen them fall steadily since late last year and, and into this year, um, you're seeing more and more of these companies trade at a negative enterprise value. And, you know, that puts that that puts these companies at a, at a kind of a crossroads. You know, they have to figure out, you know, either it, it makes it much more difficult for them to raise money. And, you know, there are going to be companies like Checkmate uh, who will go out and they will find uh, someone willing to buy them. And so, you know, that's I guess you can call that a positive outcome. But there are, you know, there are other companies that will sort of face the same decisions or same choices um, and will have to close up. I mean, you can look at a company like Kaleido Biosciences, which, again, was in the same similar situation uh, last week, decided that uh, it was going to shut down operations. You know, essentially, they went through all the, quote unquote, strategic alternatives or looking for a strategic alternative and, and found none. And so they decided to just just basically shut down. Yeah, it kind of calls to mind something we've heard from people in major pharma. I know Giovanni Caforio from Bristol-Myers Squibb has said, and I think Albert Borla from Pfizer as well, which is basically that just because a biotech company is trading at a tiny amount of money relative to where they were two years ago, doesn't mean that the people who run it think that that's reasonable and thus would agree to a buyout deal that, like the Checkmate one, um, is a premium to their recent trading, but is below, for instance, their IPO. And I think, you know, we've heard that from pharma as a way of kind of pumping the brakes on the investor enthusiasm for this idea that pharma has cash, biotech is has depressed valuations, and thus deals will happen. But I wonder if the Checkmate thing is a sign that, you know, in certain situations, where the alternative is apparently oblivion, we may in fact see some of these deals start to materialize. Yeah, and I think I think you're right, Damon. And I think also, if you look at a company like Checkmate, you know, oftentimes we think of these distressed companies or companies that are not that, that don't really have anything in the pipeline. Their drugs are, you know, their drugs are failing clinical trials. But Checkmate was not one of those companies. I mean, they have a drug. It's a you know, it's a immunotherapy for cancer. It had some promising data uh, early on, but I think you know these companies go. Went public. There were so many of these companies went that went public around the same time in that sort of 2019, 2020, 2021 timeframe when there was just so much money flooding into the sector that basically any idea could become a company and then that company could go public. And there was just too many. I think that if you Checkmate is a good example of a company that probably was a really good drug development project that didn't need to be its own public company, but it did go public and it just sort of languished because. 
you know, there was it could not stand out in the crowd. And and for that reason, the stock was depressed and the company had trouble raising money and it ended up in the situation that is. And I think they're not the only company that's sort of at this crossroads right now. What happens to the assets uh, of a company like Kaleido if it just shuts down? Like if it had promising technology, like does that get unleashed in some way? I guess it just sort of gets out. I mean, yeah, you could see other companies pick it up. Uh, you know, the, you might see, you know, another company sort of buy the assets from them, license the assets from them. I, I don't know in, in Kaleido's in Kaleido's case specifically what is going to happen to to the drugs or the projects that they were working on. But you know, you do, you often do see things kind of get resurrected like years down. I mean, it is always funny, especially if you cover biotech for as long as I have. When you you know you see a company and you're like, that drug sounds familiar, <laughs> you know, and it may have changed names, um, but then you're like, oh yeah, I remember that from like you know ten years ago. paper, it sounds pretty reasonable. If a medical device promises to dramatically improve people's lives, it should get special FDA treatment to speed up the process of getting to patients. But in practice, it's quite a bit more complicated. Stat reporters Katie Palmer and Mario Aguilar spent months digging into the FDA's Breakthrough Devices program and found that while that program has delivered lucrative benefits to companies making devices, its value to actual patients remains debatable at best. Mario joins us now to talk about the story. Mario, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with this concept of a breakthrough device. How does the FDA decide which technologies deserve special treatment and what does that special treatment entail? Sure. Well, companies apply to the program for their devices. And so they they have to check a series of criteria. First, um, that device has to have the potential to provide more effective treatment or diagnosis for a deadly or irreversibly debilitating condition. That's like the table stakes. That's the whole point. Like this is supposed to be uh, better than what's out there. But then there's sort of this group of four other criteria that it has to be. It has to sort of check one of four boxes. It has to be especially innovative. There have to be no alternatives. It has to provide a big advantage over existing treatments, or it has to be sort of its existence has to be in this broad sense, uh, in the best interest of patients who have to have as an option. Um, And so it has to check one of those boxes. Now, companies apply, it's free to apply, and they have to present some preliminary evidence that um, their product is going to be more effective. Usually this is uh, like an early study with a few patients showing, you know, some outcomes. Um, But we've also saw examples of companies applying with bench data or with like uh, literature reviews, um, just you know, hinting that there was a problem and this is how they were going to solve it. So in terms of the benefits, it allows companies to have more expedited conversations with FDA in certain contexts um, and also to collaborate with the agency on coming up with clinical trial plans. Um, and then this is sort of the the benefit that you don't hear about as much, but which we looked into a little more, which is when they submit for authorization for a lot of devices, it allows them to be... Um, authorized with what I would characterize as softer data, right? They shift some of that data collection to like when the the, the device is already on the market. Um, the idea being that for some of these devices, people don't really have other options and there's a benefit to making them available as quickly as possible. So you and Katie dug up some 450 devices that had received this designation. 
What did you learn? And were they all really, quote unquote, breakthroughs? Yeah, so so we found 450. Um, I should note that there are 650. So there's 200 secret designations out there in the void. And we can just uh, talk about why that is later, uh, maybe. But um, we found 450. And we found all kinds of stuff. It's um, cardiac implants for people with heart failure, brain interfaces meant to aid people with paralysis, AI di- diagnostics for cancer, um, as well as some things that you might not traditionally think of as being breakthroughs, like therapy apps, but that target um, really difficult conditions like postpartum depression, um, opiate use disorder, and so on. Um, as to whether they're breakthroughs, I think like one of the critical findings of the story is that we never really find out, right? The FDA's job like at the on on the front end, they say maybe this is more effective, but then they never actually make the de- determination at the end about whether something is more effective. Their job is to determine whether or not something is safe and effective enough to go on the market, right? And so something can receive marketing authorization and continue to claim to be a breakthrough forever without really ever proving that, right? It just has to prove that it works. So Mario, as you point out in your story, you know the whole program was little known and sparingly used in the early days, but that changed in 2019 when the Trump administration proposed a rule that would guarantee Medicare coverage for these quote-unquote breakthrough devices. So can you tell us what happened after that? And also, why do policy experts say that that's a really bad idea? Interest in the program exploded, right? It, it became, it turned in from uh, a regulatory nice to have, like it's nice to have these facilitated conversations with FDA into something that was gonna like guarantee that you were gonna make money once you got your, your product uh, authorized by the FDA. And so companies started applying in droves. Um, you know, it shot up from 250 before Trump uh, started hinting at this rule to 400 um Devices admitted are applying to the program um, to, you know, over 500 um, the next year. So it, it it became a business imperative. And and the problem here is basically because FDA never has to never makes a determination about whether something is more effective, you you bypass the CMS review that determines whether or not the uh, you know, the government ought to pay for this technology, which if it's not better than what's already out there on the market, why would we pay for it? In some cases, it, it, it could be far more expensive and only marginally better if it's better at all. Um, and so that's, that's a, you know, it's a bad arrangement. Uh, this past November, it was repealed, but the idea has not entirely gone away, right? Um, there's a version of this language that's wrapped up into the Cures 2.0 legislation, which has been uh Proposed, and you know there are some remaining uh, Medicare perks that exist for certain um, breakthrough designated devices. So certain devices that have been authorized, some of them with sort of this softer evidence, as I characterized it before, um, are being paid for at very high rates by Medicare because they have this breakthrough designation. Again, without ever proving that they are more effective. So for your story, you talked to some experts who were more than a little critical of how this program is run and how uh, its implications have borne out. How do they propose that the FDA improve it? So I think the key word here is transparency. We really don't know very much about how the FDA makes its determinations about more effective. Sure, we have the criteria, but it's kind of 
all over the place we found in our conversations with um, companies and also reg um, former regulators um, and consultants. Um, and and that matters because if we don't know how they're making this determination about more effective, we can't then evaluate the substance of the breakthrough claim when devices are on the market, right? If you never have to prove you're more effective um, and we don't know why we determined that something might be more effective, how are we supposed to then understand that something is more effective? Um, and then it's also possible that patients and providers are not aware that the devices um, they are using that are being called breakthroughs are never having that breakthrough status reevaluated. That more effective claim has not, again, reevaluated. So especially, and, and that's especially troubling in contexts where you have automatic reimbursement, which basically means that CMS actually never looks at the evidence and determines like, oh, this is more effective. Um, so they're just paying for it. And so suddenly uh, a provider might be in a situation where they are uh, recommending a treatment, which is more, which, which has, had a more effective claim made at some point that was never reevaluated. And actually it may have been cleared or authorized on softer evidence. Um, and so there, there's, a, there's a failure of transparency and communication with the public about what this really means and to, to really you know, close the loop on whether or not some, things are, some of these products are breakthroughs. And Mario, related to transparency, the reason you and Katie had to spend months tracking all this information uh, is that the FDA wouldn't disclose the names of the devices in the program. So tell us a little bit about that process and why wasn't that public information in the first place? So the FDA considers a device's breakthrough designation to be proprietary. So it will not talk about a breakthrough device at all unless a company chooses to disclose it. Um, and then it also has a policy about not discussing any devices that are both not that haven't been authorized, right? So it doesn't want to fan the flames of a device making breakthrough claims. I think to its credit, um, you know, unless they've actually done a full safety and effectiveness review on that product, which means that it will only talk about 44 devices, which, by the way, FDA did not disclose to the public until we badgered them for months about it. Um, and so uh, th they don't disclose any of this. So we had to basically, uh, you know, search all over the Internet for all of the press releases, all of the filings, all of the places that companies have made breakthrough claims and and. Uh, we've put them all together into our breakthrough devices tracker, which you can you can read on stat. Um, it's beautiful and searchable um, just to plug the work a little bit there. Um, and, it, you know, they, they don't have a policy about disclosing any of this stuff. And so, you know, it's up to people like us to to go out and find it. Well, we're definitely glad you did. Thank you for doing all the work on this gigantic project. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Epinato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your take on whether Regeneron's Checkmate acquisition is a good thing or a bad thing for biotech. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.
First, an acquisition in biotech, finally. Just what biotech investors have been waiting for, I think. Uh, we'll take a look at Regeneron's purchase of. I, I don't know, like what I did there. Hold on. <laughs> it's like an existential know, like, crisis line for I know, it really is. I, <laughs> there's right. a lot of you know, punctuation. We all have, like, you we, gotta. We, we, all have, we all have our struggles. <laughs> 